Sometimes things can be really familiar, can't they? But you can be totally unaware of the context. You might have noticed that a pyramid appeared on the screen a second ago. Take the pyramids, for example. We're used to seeing the pyramids by themselves. That's the view that we're used to, aren't we, of the pyramids? But actually, we're not used to seeing them in context. This is a view from the other side of the pyramids. So actually, they're, they're right next to Cairo. Uh, they're actually from the other side. In context, uh, they're really quite close to a city. They're not in the middle of the desert. In fact, apparently, one of the closest buildings to them is a pizza hut. Uh, if you go to uh, the pyramids. Very good view from the pizza hut. Good. So uh, context is really important. Especially for things that we're used to seeing out of context. And this is true for passages of the Bible too. They may be fine and dandy outside of context, but if we want to really understand them, we need to get the context right. So this morning, we're not so much looking at the Ten Commandments, sort of neat and packaged and out of context. We're looking at chapter 20 of the book of Exodus. It's a shame in a way that we had to stop back in December at chapter 19, because this follows on straight afterwards. The Ten Commandments are not their own book. They're not by themselves. They're in the book of Exodus, and they're repeated in the book of Deuteronomy. And they follow on from the narrative that we were following when we were in this series before. How God's people were in slavery and oppressed by Pharaoh and the Egyptians. How God had rescued his people mightily with a strong hand. How he'd revealed himself to Pharaoh and to the nations and to his people. And how he brought them through the Red Sea on dry ground. God had taken them to be his special people. His treasured possession. His royal priesthood. His holy nation. And that really is the context for these commands. We can't rip them away. From what's happened. Actually the text won't allow us to. So verse 1. And God spoke all these words saying. I am the Lord your God. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Out of the land of slavery. It's actually right there. What's been happening. And the themes of Exodus will continue. This is still about God. Redeeming his people. And revealing himself to them. One important fact, though, that we must get straight before we start. This is not the means of their rescue and redemption. What I mean by that is Israel are not keeping rules to be saved, to be rescued. God has already rescued them from slavery at this point in the story. They have already been brought out of Egypt. So this is not a case at all of follow this and I'll rescue you. It's actually, you've been rescued, now follow this. And the same is true for us in 21st century Otley. Keeping a set of rules will not save you, will not rescue you, will not redeem you. Trying to keep a set of rules will not get you to heaven. Let me put it that simply. We are saved by grace freely, by putting our trust in Christ. We are not saved by works. But we are saved for works. And in that sense, the commandments are there to help us know how to live after being saved. Before, though, essentially, they're like a charge sheet showing how we have failed and pointing to our need of Christ. So Galatians 3.24, therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. 
Now, now that Christ has come, we're not under the law. But equally, as Mike mentioned before, not a jot or a tittle of the law has passed away. It is useful for us to know how we might live when we receive it in the hands of Christ. Understanding it from the New Testament perspective of how to live when we are saved. And also understanding it in the context of Exodus. We're going to look at the commandments under two headings. They have been traditionally split along these lines. Following Jesus' teaching on the greatest commandment. So firstly, love the Lord your God. The first half of the Ten Commandments, or Ten Words as they are in Hebrew, tell us a bit about our relationship to God. And that's what God has been revealing to Israel throughout. The first four are really about how we treat God, about how we worship him. Those are the first commandments we get straight after the Ten Commandments as well. How we are to treat him, how we are to worship him. And if they're about God then surely they will depend on God's unchanging character. God is in the process of revealing himself to Israel. That's been a huge theme in Exodus. So there's a sense in which God's law should tell us about the God who gave those laws. The laws are in light of who God is. So God here is revealed in this section, first of all, as a jealous God. Have a look at verses 3 and 4. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." God, we're told there, is a jealous God. Now, jealous is nearly always a negative word in English to do with insecurity. But that's not true in Hebrew. It speaks of a rightful exclusivity. So, for example, if a man were to see his wife kissing another man, he is jealous. It's not that he's being insecure. He is rightfully offended that his wife is not being exclusively his. And the same would work the other way around. And the same here is true with God. He is to be worshipped exclusively. That's really what the first two commandments are getting at. We are to avoid idolatry, either by worshipping other things we call gods, or by making fake versions of gods, or even the true God, and bowing down to them. God is invisible. The only time he truly became visible was in the person of Jesus Christ, the image of the invisible God. But we see here that we're not to worship images, not even images of Christ. Partly because we don't know what he actually looked like, we're given no physical description in the Bible. But he almost certainly wasn't a white-skinned, blonde-haired weakling like you see in most of the pictures that you see. But apart from that, this commandment makes it clear that images and statues were never part of the plan. When we try to dumb God down to an image or a statue, we make him less than he is. We end up with a fake God. And that's why the jealous God is invoked. A visible image is not the real God. So to worship it is idolatry. We may call that thing God, but it's not. We may not make statues nowadays, or be tempted to worship another deity. 
But we can still fall into a, the same trap, can't we? Making God less than he truly is by our own imaginings. Somehow we always end up with a God that always agrees with us and lets us do what we want. But when we do that, we're just as much making an idol as surely as if it was a gold statue. Or when we worship God with our lips, but we show with our lives that we worship something else. Maybe money or family or popularity or comfort. It's still another God, even if we don't think of it like that. God is jealous, we must worship him alone. But he's also revealed as judge. We see that in verses 5 to 7. I read five, uh, most of it before. I'll just read verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. God is the one who brings rewards and punishments. You see that in verse 5 and 6. And then in verse 7 we're told that God holds people guilty or guiltless. It's a reminder that God is the judge of all mankind. How will he judge? Well, part of it will be how we speak. You may think, well, God doesn't care about what we say, but what we do. But what does Jesus say? Matthew, uh, Matthew 12, 35 to 37. The good person, out of his good treasure, brings forth good. And the evil person, out of the evil treasure, brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account... For every careless word they speak, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. What Jesus is saying there is that our mouths reveal what's inside our hearts. When God speaks his name, it reveals who he truly is. So to take his name in vain then is a big deal. To speak God's name vainly is an attack on God himself. So we need to be careful about how we speak of God. We need to be careful about how we speak, full stop, because God is judge. And then finally in this section, God is revealed as creator. Have a look at verses 8 to 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labour and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. God here speaks of his role in creation. He is the God who created the order in which we live. And we are to live in line with the order that he has created. And the idea here is that he is creator, and therefore he makes the rules. And yet in the midst of that talk of creation, he reminds us that he rested, and he tells us to do the same. Now whatever our view on the Sabbath is, rest is part of our worship to God. I originally had a very long section on this, but it boils down to this. Whatever our view on the Sabbath is, we need to live consistently with that view and rest. If we hold that Sunday is the New Testament Sabbath, a special day, then we should treat it as a special day. No work, no homework, no commerce. If we hold something theologically, then that should be worked out practically. What we mustn't do is hold that Sunday is a Sabbath and then treat it like those who don't hold that it's a Sabbath. I think that's a real danger for Sabbatarians amongst us. There's a world of difference between being theologically convinced that Sunday isn't the Sabbath 
and acting accordingly, and believing that it is, and yet acting as though it isn't. If, on the other hand, we hold that the Sabbath is fulfilled in Christ, and the sacred-secular divide in time has gone, that does not get us off the hook. We need to build in ways to make each day holy. And we also need to build in patterns of rest to acknowledge God as creator, in that he made our bodies not to work 24-7. They need a day of rest, even if it's not on one particular day. When we won't rest, we deny God his place. He is the one true, sufficient, self-sufficient creator. And if we don't rest, we shun his provision of rest for us. Do you notice, we go back to Genesis, rest was there before the fall. It's not sinful. It was there to remind us that we are not God. We do not run the world. We sleep and the world carries on. And when we rest and let go of situations for a while, we acknowledge that, that God is in charge. So God here is revealed as the jealous God, the judge, the creator, and our worship of him, our very lives, our attitudes should reflect that. And then secondly, we are to love our neighbour as ourselves. The second half of the commandments is more to do with our relationship with others, but it's still there revealing God's character. It tells us about what God is concerned about. It tells us about what God is like. Imagine for a second if uh, if God were a monster, like some atheists make him out to be. Atheists sometimes say that he's homicidal, racist, dishonest. Then surely you'd expect his rules to reflect that. But think about the rules that he gives us to live by. Honour your father and mother. Do not kill. Do not bear false witness. Does that sound like the God of the radical atheists? The one that they want to make him out to be? Not at all. He's a good God with good rules. So let's see what we find. First of all, God is the life-giving Father. Have a look at verses 12 and 13. Honour your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. God, in Exodus, has revealed himself as the father of the people. So in Exodus 4.22, it says this, Then you shall say to Pharaoh... Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. He's already revealed himself as father. In the New Testament, he's revealed as father in a far more personal way. That's why the Lord's Prayer begins, our father. He is the one who made us, who gave us life. And because of that, we're to honour those who, humanly speaking, gave us life. The New Testament notes that this is the first command with a promise that your days may be long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. I've always wondered, now I've got kids as well, whether it's the idea that if you treat your mum and dad well, they won't throttle you, uh, so you'll actually make it through to adulthood. Um, But I suspect it's more the idea of respect for that God-ordained parental authority. That's what it's talking about here. And that is a recipe for a society that will last There'll be a long time in the land if they follow that pattern. One of the marks of a godless society in 2 Timothy 3 is that the people are disobedient to their parents. That is the one that will tear us apart, will tear ourselves apart as a society. 
And if we treat our human fathers like this, what does that say about how we view God? The other side of God being life giver is that we have no right to take that life away. This prohibition doesn't extend to animals because verse 24 speaks about burnt offerings of sheep and oxen, but it does include all human beings to whom God has given life, young and old, born and unborn, healthy and ill. What we see here is that all life is valuable because it is God-given to people made in God's image. There are exceptions to this rule as you go through the law, such as war or matters of justice, but none where an individual is acting on their own authority. And Jesus also explains how this command is much broader than we think. So Matthew 5, 21 and 22. You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Do you see that this command extends into emotions, into thoughts, into speech? Even if we don't actually kill someone, mentally or verbally assassinating someone is not okay. God is life-giving father, and God does not want us to treat his children that way. He is also faithful provider. Have a look at verses 14 and 15. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. And then down to verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbour's house. You shall not covet your neighbour's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbour's. What it's saying here is that if we're trusting in God to provide, then we have no need to steal. Be it another person's possessions or another person's spouse. God has revealed himself as faithful provider. He's done that with the Israelites. He's giving them bread day by day. What need of of them is there to steal? But it goes deeper than that. God is not just provider, he's faithful provider. Tonight we're going to be looking at the book of Hosea, where God reveals himself as a faithful husband to unfaithful Israel. There she's pictured as an adulteress. Just as they are not to commit a spiritual adultery with God, so they are not to commit physical adultery with one another. God is faithful and we are to reflect that. So the worship of God does extend to our bedrooms, actually, the physical side of things as well. God cares about who we share a bed with. And Jesus again shows us that this is broader. So Matthew 5, 27. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, do you see this is broader than we think? It's to do with our thoughts and our hearts as well as our actions. Leering at women or at men is not okay. Fantasizing about bedding someone other than your spouse is not okay. Watching pornography is not okay. If that's something that you struggle with, talk to someone. That sort of sin thrives in darkness. And that's what it's really getting at there when it talks about covetousness in verse 17. That can be a really secret sin, can't it? Because only God knows what's in our hearts. 
that strong desire to possess something that is not ours, be it a house, be it a car, be it a lifestyle, be it a husband or a wife. What it's really saying there with those things is that God has not provided me what I need. God has not given me enough. I want what someone else has. But we need to remember God is faithful to us. He is giving us what we need. And we need to be faithful to him and to each other. Trusting in his provision for us, whatever that might be. If we have God, then we have enough. And then finally, God is just and true. Have a look at verse 16. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbour. God's truthful character is to be reflected by his people. Now this is often broadened, isn't it, to no lying. When you do it with Sunday school, it's no lying. And there is a law in Leviticus 19.11 that says just that. But here, the context is judicial. It's to do with a trial. To bear truthful or false witness could lead to someone's acquittal or to someone's death. And it really comes back to God's just, impartial judgment. God does not ask them to be kind so much here. He asks them to be true in order that justice might be done. There's plenty to be said here about lying, but really it's talking about people fairly that it's talking about here. Too often we make, uh, we speak to make ourselves look good, even if that means doing others down. Really, that's a version of false witness. We warp reality to suit our own agenda. <coughs> but as God's people, we're not to play that game. Ephesians 4, 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbour, for we are members of one another. As God's people, it's saying, we belong to one another. Why would we lie then to one another? Why would we do one another down? Now I know that is a lot to take in. We've gone through the whole Ten Commandments in about 20 minutes. But how do we respond to all that? Well, let's see how the Israelites do. Final point, much briefer than those two other ones. Worship God rightly. Have a look at verses 18 to 21. Now when the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that you may, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. As we said at the beginning, these laws have a context. They're part of a story. God here is speaking to his people. It's not clear exactly in Exodus, but the parallel passage in Deuteronomy makes it clear what's going on. Moses says in Deuteronomy, The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at the time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up onto the mountain. Moses is speaking to the people from the fire on the mountain. Moses is explaining clearly what God is saying as he speaks. I imagine it a little bit the way that uh, how God the Father speaks at Jesus' baptism. 
some hear an audible voice while others hear only thunder. What we must understand though is this is not Moses alone by himself on the mountain getting tablets of stone. That's actually not until chapter 24. Moses here is still at the foot of the mountain telling them clearly what God is saying. So what is their response? Well, their reaction to meeting with God for the first time as a people here in the Old Testament, they are terrified. And they ask God not to speak to them. They fear for their lives and ask Moses to be their mediator, to be their go-between. God can speak to Moses and Moses will tell the people what he has said. And from this point on, that's what happens. Only Moses hears God and then he acts as mediator to the people. And whereas the people stand far off, Moses draws near into the thick darkness where God is. It's a sort of forerunner of the temple and the tabernacle where only one man may draw near on behalf of the people. And really, it's not a great start for the people, is it? But the amazing thing for us as New Testament believers is the Bible tells us that we have something much, much better. The author of Hebrews writes this in Hebrews 12. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. Got that yet? But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We have come to Mount Zion, We can gather. We can hear. What was the author's application of that in Hebrews? See then, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven. As we hear the message of the Ten Commandments, As we think about them in in the New Testament context, we are not to refuse him who is speaking. We're to hear what he has to say. We're to do what he has to say. Don't let your familiarity with these verses make you ignore them. But we do so remembering God's character. God is the jealous God, the judge, the creator, the faithful provider, the life-giver, life-giving father just and true. And what we do day by day to live this out is respond to him rightly in the context of our day-to-day life. We honour him as all those things and we do what he says. So let's pray that God would give us the strength to live this out, to do as we are told, not to save ourselves, but to live in honour of him. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that we are not under the law. Father, thank you that we are not under the curse of the law because of Christ. Father, thank you that he came and fulfilled this. But Father, help us not to ignore what was written. All these things are given for our benefit. So Father, we pray, as we are told in Hebrews, to listen and not refuse. 
Father, help us to live out lives that are pleasing to you, that reflect your character and that honour your Son. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.